you, Sarah. Thank you, band. Good morning. Yeah. Yeah. So it was July 25th, 2009. I was standing up on a second floor balcony at an event center. I was wearing a tuxedo. And I was looking down when my daughter, Deanna, emerged from a door below, followed by her bridal party. And as she emerged from that door, I got to see her for the very first time in her wedding dress, all done up, all ready to go. And in the moment that she came into my view, I experienced this spontaneous, visceral, gut-level reaction, and I began to weep. It was January 17th, 2016. It was a Sunday evening, and my small group had just left my house when I received a call from a friend telling me that my son and my daughter-in-law had been in a car accident down on NASA Road 1 down by the Gulf Freeway. And I quickly got in my car to make my way there, and as I traveled down NASA Road 1, there suddenly came into my view this huge collection of flashing red and blue and yellow lights from this barrage of emergency vehicles. And then I saw the twisted, the mass of twisted metal that was their car. And in that very moment that all of that came into view, I experienced this spontaneous, visceral, gut-level reaction, and I began to weep. Have you ever experienced a situation like that where, where something entered your field of vision... And it seemed that you immediately experienced this spontaneous, gut-level emotional response. One that as your eyes were affected by the sight, that your heart was immediately and deeply affected to the point where it drove you to tears. I've had a few of those in my life. In the two cases that I mentioned, one situation was very joy-filled, very hope-filled, and the other devastating. And there are images that to this day, as I revisit them in my mind, they still have a profound effect on my heart, sometimes even still moving me to tears. Have you ever had an experience like that, where something came into your field of sight and almost immediately created this spontaneous reaction in your heart that kind of rebounded back to your eyes and generated tears of joy or maybe tears of pain? Moments that cause such an intense level of realization of some reality that you were moved or shaken to the very core of your being. I bet many of you have experienced that. Well, this morning I want to share a story with you from the book of Luke, chapter 19. And in this story, there is this situation where Jesus himself experiences one of these spontaneous, visceral, gut-level moments where what first affected his eyes, where the moment something entered into his field of vision, it immediately affected his heart. And then it rebounded to his eyes, and and it compelled him to tears. Now, I want to give you some background and some context before we look at the passage. By this time, Jesus had been engaged in his earthly ministry for three, three and a half years now. And over the course of this time, he had been traveling from town to town to town across this large region. And he had been teaching like no one had ever taught before. 
And he had been performing miracles like no one had ever done before, all of which pointed him towards being this long-awaited king and Messiah of the Jewish people, the savior that they had been longing for centuries and centuries for. And so with many words and many miracles over these three, three and a half years, Jesus had been providing this irrefutable evidence of who he was and of why he had come. And so the setting for our story in Luke is that this is the week that would lead to the Jewish Passover. And as many of you know, the Passover, it was this Jewish celebration in which people would travel from all parts of the region to gather in the city of Jerusalem and to celebrate the time that God had delivered the nation of Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. In Jerusalem, it became this central meeting place as that's where God's temple was located. And so Jewish tradition would be that people from all over would collect there in the city of peace, which is what the name meant, to not only commemorate God's work in freeing them from slavery, but to remind them of this promise that God made to one day send them this king, this Messiah, this this savior, where he would deliver them into a time of peace and a time of salvation And so you might imagine during this time then that there are tons of people from all around that are pouring into Jerusalem from all sides for this holy week that would culminate in the Passover feast. And so comes Jesus and his disciples. They're heading to Jerusalem as well because they're Jews. And so, of course, that was their tradition as well. And so we find as Luke chapter 19 opens up, in fact, the first 27 verses that Jesus and his followers, as they were traveling to Jerusalem, they come upon the town of Jericho. Now, I want, to get geog- I want you to get geography in your mind. So consider this. Jericho is located northeast or up and to the right of Jerusalem, but on the opposite side of this mountain ridge that was called the Mount of Olives. Okay, So that ridge, it separated the two cities. And so while passing through Jericho, Jesus decides to stop to do some teaching. In fact, maybe you've heard the story or maybe you've heard the song about Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. You know the one, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. This is where that story happens and this is when it happens. In fact, after Zacchaeus has this life-changing encounter with Jesus... Jesus may have most succinctly summed up his whole purpose for coming to earth. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And that simple statement summarized the good news of the gospel that had been unfolding now over the three or three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The good news that Jesus came to restore humanity person by person, into this reconciled, eternal relationship with God that had been shattered by sin. And so Jesus does some teaching in Jericho, and he and his followers then continue on their journey towards Jerusalem through this mountain road that would wind its way up one side of the Mount of Olives and then down the other towards Jerusalem. And you can read about this journey in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. We like to call it, this section of passage, the triumphal entry. And so verses 29 through 35 of this, they describe that as Jesus and his disciples reached the towns of Bethpage and Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, 
nestled in the Mount of Olives, that Jesus would send two of his disciples into a village to go collect a donkey's cult, which he is now intending that he's going to ride the rest of the way into Jerusalem. And this was very symbolic, very symbolic for a couple of reasons. See, in ancient times, if a king were to enter a city in peace, he would ride the cult of a donkey in order to communicate his peaceful intentions. And this wouldn't be lost on the Jewish people as that there were stories in their scriptures about their historical kings that would do this same thing. But more profoundly, in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, again, in the scriptures of these Jewish people, it was prophesied that the Messiah would one day ride a cult into Jerusalem. That verse, it says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey's colt. And so the symbolism of Jesus riding a colt into Jerusalem is thick with prophetic implications to the Jewish people. And as Jesus is now traversing through this mountain road, large crowds are now traveling the road with him. See, they're coming from all over the region to get into Jerusalem, so there's a ton of people traveling. But in addition to the heavy traffic of those, there is now this large contingent of Jesus' followers traveling along with him. And the gospel accounts in Scripture, they tell us that because of the notoriety that Jesus had gained now over the years of his ministry, that there was much buzz about him going on in Jerusalem. And so there were many curious people in Jerusalem that heard that he was on the way to the city. And so they came out to check him out, including many of the Jewish religious elite that represented this opposition that had formed against Jesus over these three years. And so there's this big crowd. Just picture this big crowd at this point as Jesus is riding this cult down the road. And then Jesus' followers, they begin to take off their garments and throw them on the road in front of the cult. And from other gospel accounts of this story, we see as well that people are cutting palm branches off of palm trees and throwing them down on the road before him. This is where the name Palm Sunday comes from in our Christian tradition. And this was also this ancient symbol of recognition of a king as he approaches and then enters into a city. And then in the midst of all of this, the crowd, they they start to serenade Jesus with this song of praise that comes from the Psalms, which is essentially the Jewish hymn book. In Luke chapter 19, verse 38, it records what they're singing. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in highest heavens. And they're singing this over and over and over again. And in these words, they're recognizing that Jesus is God's promised king and Messiah and Savior that he promised to send them. In fact, in all of Jesus' ministry, this would be the most public display of affirmation by the Jewish people of his identity. And so all this hoopla is transpiring. It is a celebration. And then we get to Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And we see Jesus' spontaneous, visceral gut reaction that I mentioned earlier. It says this in that verse. As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. As he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, 
he began to weep. And so get the picture. Jesus is winding his way through the Mount of Olives. He is being celebrated and serenaded by throngs of people as the king who would finally bring peace and salvation to the Jewish people. And as Jerusalem, which is the city that symbolizes all that God had promised to restore for these people, as Jerusalem comes into his field of view, it drives him to tears. As the mountain road, it finally opens up to unveil this great walled city and the temple of God that's within it. As Jesus' eyes first catch a glimpse of it, maybe with the sun glistening off of the gold and the bronze overlays that are on the temple structures, Jesus experiences this spontaneous response that drives him to tears. What could have driven such a response? On a a surface read, based on what we understand is happening along the road, could it be tears of joy or of gratitude that finally, after three and a half years of tireless ministry, do the people finally get it? The crowd is giving him these serious props and praise. Might be he just soaking in the serenading of the crowd. And could Jesus have been moved to tears of joy and gratitude as as he saw Jerusalem come into view? That city of peace that was to beckon his coming. Not, not, despite all of the fanfare of his arrival into Jerusalem, this entry is not a pleasant one for Jesus. The tears that Jesus gushed as Jerusalem came into view were just the opposite of spontaneous tears of joy and gratitude. Like the ones that I had when my daughter first emerged out of that door adorned in her wedding dress. No, this was more like the opposite, more like that spontaneous, uncontrollable response of tears that I had as I came upon that accident scene. In fact, in the original Greek, the word that Luke uses that our English Bibles translate as weep or cry actually means to wail, to mourn in grief and mourning. And so what Luke is describing to us in this verse is that as Jesus winds his way along the mountain road, and as the city of Jerusalem comes into view, Jesus just doesn't get a little bit weepy, but he spontaneously, viscerally wails in mourning. And you've got to wonder, in light of all of the celebration that's going on, what would drive emotions of grief and pain like that? But we can give it just a little bit of thought, and we would remember that over the years of his ministry, there became this mounting opposition from the religious elites against Jesus, who sensed that their power structures, their established traditions were at risk based upon the popularity that Jesus was gaining. And quite frankly, as his teaching seemed so often aimed at unraveling the religious protocols and the positions of influence that these powerful men had established over time. And as Jerusalem was the power base for these religious elites that felt highly threatened by Jesus, maybe Jesus was concerned about them. I mean, we know as well that Jesus had been talking to his disciples about his impending death recently, which Jesus knew would be humiliating and excruciating. And so as Jesus saw Jerusalem, surely he sensed the reality of the brutal death that he would suffer in just a few short days. And it would be so logical for us to think that Jesus' intense grief 
is born out of his knowledge of the death that he would soon experience. But that's not it either. Instead, what drives Jesus to this spontaneous, gut-wrenching response of tears is the profound realization that the offer of peace and of salvation that he had come to offer would be summarily rejected by the very people that he had come to seek and save. Jesus' heart was not broken over what he would experience, but over what they would never experience, which would be restored relationship with God and eternal life. Luke records Jesus' words offered in the midst of this wailing in verses 42 through 44. And just try to imagine Jesus uttering these words amongst the flow of tears and sobs even. In verse 42, Jesus says, How I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way to peace. God had been developing this special relationship with the Jewish people for a few thousand years now. And even as God proved himself faithful and good to them over and over, the desires of the flesh of men and women, they would repeatedly reject God's offer of grace and peace and salvation. We see that throughout the pages of the Old Testament over and over again. And so finally, God decides, I'm going to show up in flesh. And Jesus comes, God himself comes in the flesh. And now he spent the last three plus years trying to prove to them over and over and over again that he was their God, that he was their Messiah, that he was their Savior, that they had been longing for. But even now, they couldn't get out of their own selfish, worldly ways to accept this offer of peace and salvation. And it broke his heart. It broke his heart. It drove him to tears. But it wasn't just the rejection of what he had come to offer them eternally that broke his heart. It was also the knowledge that he had of what the rejection would mean for them, even in the here and the now. He is aching for them to understand the way to peace. And so he continues this lament in verses 43 and 44 because he sees what's coming for them in the here and now. He says, but now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. And Jesus doesn't offer these words in a harsh way or in a condemning way. He offers them in wails of grief and and, and pain because of what they're going to miss and what they're going to lose. Jesus, you see, he sees the destruction of Jerusalem that will come in about 40 years when the Roman army will lay siege to the city. And they will destroy it and everyone in it. The bottom line was Jesus wept with this gut-wrenching sorrow and grief and pain for the people that would reject him and what he came to offer. That's why. And we know that Jesus' offer of peace and eternal salvation wasn't just for those people, but it's for all people that would ever come. And his grief and his weeping And his wailing over those that would reject him and his offer, it continues today when salvation is rejected. And so with this truth in view this morning, I have a profound question for you. 
is Jesus weeping over you? Is Jesus weeping over you, over your life in relation to this peace and this salvation that he's come to offer? And I would say for those in the room that have not placed your faith in Jesus, as he surveys your life, he begins to weep. He begins to weep. He's done, he's done so much. He's done enough. As he had done for those in the Luke story, for you to come to a place to understand who he is and what he desires for your life and love in love and compassion, and he sobs at your rejection of him. For your benefit, not for his. And if this is true, and I believe that it is with all my heart, then what are the barriers that stand in the way of you making a decision to accept Jesus' gift of salvation and eternal life? What is needed to turn his tears of grief over you into tears of joy? And I love it. The fact that you're even here today is such a positive sign of this pursuit that you may be on to knock those barriers down. And I applaud that. We applaud that. And I recognize there's a journey that most people take to that faith decision. For me, it was about a nine-month journey. And it was a very intentional one of seeking truth and answers to overcome the barriers that were in my life. And so for you, I would just challenge you to critically, intentionally, and even urgently gather the additional evidence that you feel like you need to make a decision about Jesus. Because if what the Bible says about him is true, your very eternity, which is even in the midst of here and now, is at stake. Several times for me during my journey, I longed to just have experienced what the Jews of that generation in the Luke story had. You know, to have had the benefit of seeing his teaching firsthand, of maybe seeing his miracles performed, or at least living in a time where if I didn't personally experience them, there would have been many contemporary eyewitnesses that could have verified the accounts. That would have been so much easier for me to have been there. And honestly, it's hard for me to imagine how they could have been present for all of that over those years and still rejected him. But, but I wasn't there, except that through this intentional pursuit over some time, I came to believe that there was just this preponderance of evidence that suggested it must be true. That Jesus had left enough evidence for reasonable and rational people to discern the truth even like a hard-headed lug nut like me. And so how many questions do you have left to be answered? Beyond the ones that you've already had answered, how many more questions do you have? Do you even know what they are? Would you tell us? How many more archaeological finds that support the historical accuracy of the Bible do you need to hear about? Beyond the 25,000 plus already found and confirmed, not one disputing the veracity or historical accuracy of what is written in the Bible. How many more of those would you need to trust the Bible's reliability as a historical document and his testimony about Jesus? Or maybe most profoundly, how many more stories of real, positive life change do you need to see in people that leave you legitimately scratching your head and wondering, I knew that person. I knew what their life was like. How in the world could this have happened to him or her 
or them now as I see their life and I see the peace and the freedom that's in it. Only a miracle could do that. How many more life change stories do you need to hear? You know, if you haven't decided on faith in Jesus, then you've decided on a faith without him. You already have faith. It's just a question of what your faith is in and whether you're willing to bank your life on it. Here is this profound truth for you. As Jesus surveys your life, as he takes you in with his eyes, he's compelled to weep if you don't have a relationship with him, to wail and grieve over your rejection of his offer of peace and salvation because of his great, great love for you. And so I would beg those of you in the room, in that camp, be relentless in your pursuit of the truth. Be relentless. And maybe for some of you in the room, maybe you have seen enough. Maybe you've heard enough and you feel this urging from deep inside you to just say yes to Jesus. That peace and that salvation that he came to offer you, that he came to offer the Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem, and to you is but an authentic prayer away. To simply acknowledge that he came to forgive your sins and to affirm your desire that he would lead your life. Even though you don't know the half of what it means, a simple yet profound prayer like that and his gracious gift of peace and salvation is yours. You could pray that in this moment or along with me when I close out the message in prayer in a few minutes. Maybe for some in the room, today is a day for you that you would turn Jesus' tears of grief and pain over you into tears of joy. And for those of you in the room that would say that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, I just pose this question to you. Might Jesus be weeping or wailing over you? And I, I confess that the specific context of this passage that drove Jesus to weep in grief was directly related to the rejection of people by his offer of peace and salvation. And so you as a Christ follower, you would say, well, I haven't rejected that. I've accepted it. But personally, I can't escape the image of Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem without thinking about how much pain and sorrow he must have felt as he considered the religious elite in Jerusalem. You know, the ones that thought that they were just fine with God. That everything was just right between them and God. But you know, when you look at the book of Genesis, when God made this covenant with Abraham to create this special people group for himself that would become the Jewish people, what you see is God telling Abraham it will be through this special group of people that God would bless all of the rest of the nations and all of the people groups of the world. That it would be through the Jews that the good news of God's offer of peace and salvation would be extended to the entire world. And so here they were, the ones they thought they had it all together. They were just fine with God. I can't help but think God looking over them, or Jesus looking over them and weeping at this spiritual pride they had and at this apathy and indifference to this great gift of privilege and responsibility that he had called them to. And he's extended that great gift of privileged responsibility to the church today. And so here's the question for you Christ followers in the room. Might Jesus be weeping? Is Jesus wailing over your indifference, over your lack of passion to the call that God has made on your life to share the good news about Jesus? Like what happens to your heart as your eyes take in all those that are far from Jesus? 
or from, might that compel your heart to wet your eyes with tears, or are you simply blind to their, their spiritual reality? Does it have no effect on you at all? Oh, might, might this be a local church where we, one by one, would turn Jesus' tears of grief over our indifference and our apathy to this great condition to tears of joy as we would claim the gift of a privileged responsibility to make Jesus' offer of peace and salvation known around, to those around us. May the Apostle Paul's declaration of his life's purpose in Acts 20, 24 become each of ours. Here's what Paul said. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Oh, I challenge us, Christ followers, to beg God to make this verse the passion of our heart, that it would come alive in our lives. And as we would do that, I could imagine, I could picture in my mind that person by person, Jesus' tears of anguish over the apathetic Christian were turned to tears of joy as they became purpose-filled to share, to share the eternal hope of the good news. Might we be that kind of church? We can start right now. Friends, I, I urge everyone in the room, be back here next week for Easter. Rick is going to share a profound message about the good news about Jesus and this invitation to faith. And for those of you that are still uh, on the fence about a decision, Rick may answer one or more of those questions that, that you still have. I urge you to be here. And for those of us that are Christ followers in the room, we should boldly and wildly invite people around us to come out and to, and to listen to this message of truth. Pray with me. Father in heaven, oh, we are, um, may we be struck so deeply in the passion and the heartbreak that Jesus had for those that he came to die for, to offer eternal life for in the midst of their rejection of him. May you build in us this great heart, those of us that follow you, Jesus, this great heart for passion for those that don't know you, such that we would be driven to tears of pain and grief. And for those, Father, that, that haven't yet made a decision for you, may there be even one in the room today, Father, that would say, I have heard enough. I know, Jesus, that you came to forgive me of my sins, and I choose to have you lead my life. If there would be but one that would make that simple yet profound prayer, all of eternity would break out in celebration and their eternity would change forever. Father, we pray that with great hope and that as we enter into this Easter season, Easter season that we would be stirred by your love. We pray this with hope and expectation in Jesus' name. Amen.